in Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi novel Foundation and Empire. There's a musical instrument called the Visisoner that can create visions in the minds of its listeners. It can put them into trances, stimulate their emotions, and even later in the book be used as a deadly weapon. Kind of just sounds like a set of bagpipes to me, but what do I know? I'm not an award-winning sci-fi author. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about fictional musical instruments and real musical instruments, and, well, mostly just real musical instruments. We're going to be doing something a little bit different on this episode, talking about fictional worlds and the music that emanates from them. So pour yourself a beverage, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. Bagpipes always get a hard time because, yes, they can be sort of a terrible sounding instrument if they're played badly, but they can also be really cool. I grew up in Indiana and did marching band in high school, and there was another high school in our state. They were the Anderson Highlanders, and they had bagpipes in their marching band. This was not a common thing for Indiana high school marching bands, but there was just this one band, and they would wear kilts, and they would come out with the bagpipes, and they would write their arrangements. You know, they would do their marching routines around this bagpipe section that would come out. They were a really good marching band, and it was always so cool. I just, I remember every time we would go to a competition, you know, my high school would go and they would be there. We would all make a point of going to watch just because it was so fun to watch them do their thing. Thank you so much to all of you who have really come through in the last few weeks. Um, On the last couple of episodes, I've been mentioning some ways that people can support the show and it's been very cool how many people have come through. We've gotten a lot of reviews on the Apple Podcast app. That's great. Keep them coming if you haven't left a review yet. I really appreciate both the kind words and the fact that people are leaving good reviews and also the fact that we're getting more of them because I do think that once you get past a certain number, you start getting recommended. And that would be cool for more people to see the show um, via the Apple Podcast app itself. Though I also really appreciate everyone who's been spreading the word themselves, telling their friends. I hear from lots of people who are doing that, and that's really cool. The other main way to support the show, of course, is on Patreon. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash strongsongs. You can sign up to pledge a certain amount of money to support the show, which is really huge for me and lets me dedicate the kind of time that I've been enjoying dedicating to the show uh, just to continue to do that going forward and turn it into a sustainable thing that I can do. Um, A bunch of people have signed up in the last three or four weeks, and that's been really cool. We actually just passed the latest goal of 250 patrons, which means that I'm going to make a bonus episode interviewing a special interview subject, and that'll drop at some point in the next month. Everyone's going to get to hear it, not just Patreon backers, and it's going to be really cool. I'm very, very excited about it. I have my interview subject all picked out. It's going to be a really special episode, so I'm going to be working on that pretty hard in addition to regular Strong Songs episodes. You can find links to the Patreon along with a newsletter sign-up and actually playlists on Apple Music and Spotify for the songs from this show. Uh, those are all down in the show notes, so if you want to, uh, to check any of that out, uh, that's where you can find links for all of that. 
All right, let's get into it. This episode is a little bit different. This is an off-format episode. I'm kind of doing an experiment here. We're going to see how it goes. But I'm doing something that's actually been requested quite a bit by listeners. So I have a feeling that people are going to dig it, or at least the people who've requested this are going to dig it. But um, I've gotten a lot of requests to talk about TV music, um, theme songs from TV shows. And to do an episode that's not focused on one song the way that most of the you know episodes of Strong Songs are, and instead to do something that's more of a collection of songs, some of my favorite TV themes, maybe, and uh, and to just do a shorter analysis of each of them. So that's what I'm going to do. In fact, I'm going to do something a little bit more specific. I started out just trying to think of my favorite TV show theme songs, and there are so, so many of them that just picking you know a, a small enough number, I figured five was a pretty good number, and um, picking a small enough number felt a little bit arbitrary, like I was just picking you know at random, and I wanted to narrow it down a little bit. So instead of just doing TV themes, for this episode, I'm going to be focusing on anime. Animated TV themes. So I've got a handful of theme songs from animated TV shows, many of which were shows that I watched when I was growing up. Even by narrowing it down to animated shows, I still, there are way too many that I could pick from. So this is by no means a definitive list. This is not the best animated TV themes, nothing like that. This is just a handful of songs that I think are really good and interesting that I have musical thoughts on and things to share. Like I said, this is an experiment. This is strong TV songs and we could do strong movie songs and strong video game songs. We could do strong advertisement songs. There's all kinds of songs that we could do in this format in the future. It's not going to become a super regular thing or like replace the basic format of the show, but it is something that I think would be fun. So this is a kind of maiden voyage and we're going to see how it goes. Without further ado, let's get into Strong TV Songs Animated Edition. When you hear those two notes, what do you hear? On a basic level, you're probably like, those are two notes on a piano. You can probably tell that they are two different notes on a piano. Maybe on a slightly different level, you can tell that they're kind of two notes that don't fit together super well. They sound a little bit, like, awkward. If you've done any ear training or you're a longtime Strong Songs listener, you may be thinking, I know what those two notes are. Those are a tritone, the interval, the space between those two notes. That interval is called a tritone. That's a very famous interval, isn't it? You are correct that it's a tritone, and you're correct that that's a very famous interval. If you're a TV fan and you're hearing those two notes, you're maybe thinking one other thing. You're thinking, you know, that sounds a little bit familiar. And you'd be right, because that tritone, that interval, forms the harmonic backbone of one of the greatest TV theme songs of all time. What better way to start our show than with Danny Elfman's Simpsons theme and its many, many variations. I gotta tell you, I sat down to learn this piece of music. I mean, I have heard this theme song thousands of times, probably, like that may not even be an exaggeration. I'm sure a lot of you out there are similar. I've heard it so many times. The very first time I heard it, I was a kid. The Simpsons came on in 1989. I probably first watched it in 1990, so I was like 10 years old, and it blew me away. I, mean, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I've always loved Danny Elfman's music, even as a kid. I think his it just appeals to something really innate in people, and he's a wonderful composer, but the first time I heard this theme, I thought it was so good. I actually didn't love the 
Simpsons. It was like a little adult for me when I was a kid, but I loved the music. So, you know, I've heard it a ton of times, but when I sat down to learn it, I really got inside what an incredible composition this is and how much musical information, how many tonal shifts and key shifts he incorporates into this very short piece of music. It goes to so many different places and different key centers. Um, it captures a bunch of different classic moods very, very quickly, which, you know, the title sequence of The Simpsons is this whirlwind tour of Springfield. You're flying around through the town and meeting, seeing all the characters really quickly. And so the music has to kind of do these constant, like, really hard shifts into different vibes and different keys. And he does that very cleverly. So I want to break some of that down for you here. So even before the main theme comes in, that first choral statement establishes the tonality of this song, which is Lydian slash Lydian dominant. Not going to get super technical or into an explanation of that. We got a lot of stuff to cover on this episode. Basically what that means is that tritone that I was talking about, which is a sharp four or a flat five, the note that bisects the octave, that is a really important interval in the Lydian tonality. Lydian is a mode of the major scale. I've talked about modes in past episodes. If you're curious, go back and listen to the back catalog. But uh, basically Lydian dominant is like a dominant chord. It's got a flat 7 and it's also got a sharp 11 or a sharp 4. So the sharp 4 gives you that kind of jangly, uneven, loping Lydian sound that this whole thing is built around. And the flat 7th, you know, that dominant 7th, that gives you a kind of a bluesy sound that Elfman also uses uh, really well throughout this piece. So at the very beginning there, when you hear that first line, that is emphasizing that tritone, that sharp 4. Incidentally, those three notes, the Simpsons, those same three notes are actually the main motif from one of the most famous Broadway musical numbers of all time. That's why it may sound a little bit familiar to you. The first three notes from the Simpsons theme are also the main motif from Maria from Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story. Maria, 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 I've just met a girl named Maria. You hear it right? The Simpsons. Maria. Tritones, still useful after all these years. Immediately after that, the alto saxophone and flute established the theme, the Simpsons theme's theme, which is then modulated and warped and twisted and turned all in all kinds of different directions uh, throughout the rest of the piece. So that melody is very strongly built around that tritone, just like this whole arrangement is just lousy with them. I mean, it is just constructed out of tritones. It's right there in the melody. It's the third note. It's also at the very end of the melody. That's the tritone resolving to the fifth. It's, of course, in the background. The strings are playing it. The bass is going back and forth between it. The left hand of the piano is also just doing tritones. So the tritone to me always sounds like if you stand totally still, maybe do this as an exercise, stand totally still and then go and like raise one of your shoulders up and then leave the other shoulder still, but just raise the other one shoulder up. That's how Lydian always feels to me. And that's how this whole piece feels to me. It's kind of this like shambling thing.
couple of cool things are going on there. First of all, there's just those those sort of woodwind flourishes that are such Danny Elfmanisms. Um, I think that he's doing something on the melodic minor scale here, which is sort of what lines up with Lydian dominant. Um, I'm not totally sure of all the notes. I'm not going to transcribe all of them. He does this kind of thing on like diminished chords and all sorts of things. It's in every one of his film scores. You'll hear that. But he just loves writing that for woodwinds. Elfman is a composer with a lot of isms, but that's maybe his most strongly defining one or the one that I associate most with him. Whenever I hear a new film, I'm seeing a movie, and I hear something like that in the score, I immediately think, ah, this must be a Danny Elfman score. You'll hear it all over the place in his classic stuff like Beetlejuice and The Nightmare Before Christmas. You'll hear it in another of his very famous themes that we'll actually talk about because it is related to an animated show. But it's definitely here in full force. It happens throughout. It's a fun thing to listen to because it's so common in this very short theme. They, he manages to fit that flourish in quite a bit. The other thing that I like here is the way that he immediately modulates and um, varies the theme that he's established. He establishes the theme in C. And then they really quickly, they jump into B and do a variation on the theme. It establishes the frantic tone of this piece, which is so frantic and moving through different key centers and tones so quickly. And that matches up, of course, with the opening sequence that you're watching as the camera just flies around this city. As the keys are shifting, and the keys just keep shifting, we'll go through it, but as the keys are shifting, the instrumentation is also changing really dramatically. Remember, this started with like a choir and harps playing in the background, and then suddenly it's a little duet between an alto saxophone and a flute. And then you've got like the full band kind of coming in with this oompa, oompa, and the low brass. And then the muted trumpets the trumpets have put in mutes it's like a mix of harmon mutes and i think plungers or maybe both and you get that like as they're accompanying the band is shifting its tonalities really really quickly and, and frantically there's barely time for that b key center to settle in before we're off to e and then suddenly it's in for the strings at e who take over with a kind of more broader stretched out version of the theme So after that digression to E, it's back to C, the original key. We've kind of come in one circle for what should be a kind of a triumphant return to the main theme as performed by the Springfield Elementary School Band. But of course, it's cut short by Lisa Simpson, who can't resist disrupting the class, soloing on her baritone saxophone. I love everything about that. I loved everything about that ever since I was a kid. I started playing saxophone when I was like 13 years old, right around when I started watching The Simpsons, and I always thought it was so cool, both that Lisa, an elementary school kid, played saxophone, which is already uncommon, and that she played the baritone saxophone, which is very uncommon, and also that she was good. I mean, even listening to the way that that sax is played, the articulation is happening. That is a really legit berry player. I believe the credit for that is a player named Terry Harrington who provided the saxophone for Lisa and I've always enjoyed just how much kind of care they put into making the saxophone playing good. Lisa Simpson, my favorite Simpson, isn't just a saxophone player, she's a good saxophone player. So you'll notice at the end of her line she kind of, it feels like she gets a little bit bluesy. That's because she goes up to the minor third which is a very bluesy sound, that kind of at the end. And what's also kind of cool is she's setting up the next key change which happens immediately after that. The minor third in C which is the key we're kind of back in, remember, is an E-flat. And they just, then the whole band jumps up to E-flat as if cued by Lisa Simpson. But just as quickly, they go back to B. 
Are you getting exhausted yet? I'm exhausted just trying to get through all of this. It moves so fast and so wildly. Um, it's just, it's so cool and so perfect for this show. Um, they hit that B theme, they kind of reprise it, and then they're back into C. Before they get there, though, they do something that I really like. That's when they're at the very end of that B reprise of the theme. They actually emphasize a slightly different note, and that's uh, when they when they play this line, the brass kind of come in very strong on it. That's actually the flat seventh, so that's uh, sort of emphasizing the dominant part of the Lydian dominant that this whole thing is really built around, and it gives it this kind of big city zazz sound that I think just goes back to that use of the dominant seventh in a lot of music that's sort of associated with the big city and like industry. You would kind of watch it on a promotional video for a new factory. Um, it's a great sound, and it happens for I'd say maybe two seconds, but it really captures a very different vibe right before they release into a whole new section. So this is what it sounds like in the actual recording. You know what I mean? Just for a second, the, just that little riff that the brass plays, it makes me hear a voiceover like, Welcome to Springfield, the new center for industry. And I love that shift. I think it's set up really well by that big industrial, you know, Lydian dominant sound that then suddenly just goes really wide and light. And suddenly you've just got pizzicato strings and like a glockenspiel or bells kind of playing along. And the melody is very different. It's still emphasizing that Lydian sound, but it's just a different melody. It's not the theme. And it's just this kind of rolling, driving, bouncing groove. Man, also talk about strategic trombone deployment. I love that little trombone slide. When they come in at the end of the line. It's such a little thing, and there are so many little things like that in this arrangement um, that I could highlight all of them and you know do a whole episode just on this piece. But it goes to show just how much care was put into this arrangement and into this composition. Oh man, there's another one that I love, that brass shake, that trumpets do this like <laughs> kind of shake. It's, it sounds a little bit like a horse. It's that trumpet horse effect that they do coming out of that. It's super cool. And with that brass shake, we're now in a new key. We're actually in D flat. And the Simpsons theme actually ends in D flat. It starts in C, it goes to B, it goes to E flat, goes back to C, goes to E. It's in all kinds of different keys. And uh, they actually end a half step up from where they began. So there's this whole cluster of notes. It's in C, it's in B, it's in D flat. They're all half steps away from each other. It really goes to show just how weird and angular and quickly moving um, this piece of music is. But now we're in D flat and it's time to bring the whole thing home, literally as each member of the Simpson family arrives home and the show can begin. Whew. Love those harp rips at the end, too. Is it a rip on the harp? What do you call it, like a harp whisk? Anyway, this, the thing the harps do here. And then again... So many cool flourishes, so many cool variations on a theme, such a cool central harmonic idea, such a great piece of music by Danny Elfman. Man, I need like a glass of water after that. There's a lot there. I hope that the next time you listen to the Simpsons theme, you'll hear a little bit more because there's a, there's just so much going on that I didn't even get into. It's a really, really thick piece of music. I'd also be remiss if I didn't at least mention um, Danny Elfman's other major contribution to animated theme music, and that is the theme that he wrote really not for the show. He wrote it for the movie, but then was used in the show. And that, of course, is his Batman theme, which was used to great effect on the wonderful series Batman the Animated Series. 
listening to that, I'm sure you hear some of those same elfmanisms that we talked about in the Simpsons theme, the sort of woodwind lines that fly off the handle, the brass accents that come in with the mutes. Even you heard a little harp uh, harp rip at the end there, just like at the end of the Simpsons theme. So that's a really cool theme. I could talk about the Batman theme a lot more, and maybe I will in the future, but not on this episode for now. Man, Danny Elfman's got a lot of energy. I think it's time to cool things down. You kind of need a break. Feels like I just like had a long day at school or something. Maybe just get a snack, a nice beverage, sit back in front of the TV, and uh, let's see what's on. That's right, our next strong animated TV theme is actually from the Disney Afternoon uh, series of cartoon shows that would air in the early 90s that many people, I'm guessing listening to the show, people of my generation, think of very fondly and kind of can't get out of our heads whenever we hear them. I want to talk about one piece of music in particular, the theme song for one show that's my personal favorite, though I'm actually going to talk about two because there's another one that I know that everybody loves and that I really like too, though in my opinion it's not quite, it doesn't have quite as much going on as the one that I really love. So up front, before we get started, the recordings that I'm going to be referencing here are from a 2008 album by the Disney Afternoon Studio Chorus, where they perform all of these songs. The actual versions that played in the cartoons, which were, you know, came out in the early 90s and late 80s, uh, were a little bit different. Some of the recordings changed over the years. So I'm going off this as a reference because it's a really good recording. They're really fun to listen to. And they give an idea of the kind of stuff that Disney was doing um, throughout each of these songs. And really, I want to focus on the performances and on the compositions. So the first Disney Afternoon theme song that I want to talk about is a song that a lot of people know, and it's going to get stuck in your head after I play it for you, and I apologize for that, though I'm not really that sorry, because it's got a really good melody. The catchiest part of the melody is also the name of the show. That's right, the theme song from DuckTales, which premiered in 1987 and was written by songwriter Mark Mueller, is one of the catchiest and earwormiest TV themes ever written. I have some theories on why that is, I'll explain in a minute. I really, really like this theme song. Um, I think it's just got some really fun ideas. It's not as musically rich as the second tune I'm going to spend a little bit more talking about. That was also written by Mark Mueller. He kind of, these are the two big pieces that he composed. But the DuckTales theme is great, and there's a reason that it just kind of comes back up in the culture every so often and people start talking about it because the minute you hear someone sing that chorus you just have to you get it stuck in your head you have to start singing it these theme songs are all credited to the Disney Afternoon Studio Chorus, and I've had a really hard time finding specific credits, uh, which is which is too bad because there are some really, really talented musicians on this. The singers, there's a whole group of singers that you can hear. There's a whole album of this stuff you can listen to, and you can hear different singers coming to the fore. The guy who sings the lead on DuckTales is different than the guy who sings the lead on the Disney Afternoon theme song. They've got a really low bass guy who sings the Tailspin theme and does a really has just an amazing low voice. If you want the cheapest gas and you don't know what and you can kind of hear all of these musicians. It was just a bunch of studio pros, I'm sure, who got together probably in L.A. and recorded this. I wish I had individual credits because I love the individual musicians. But it is the Disney Afternoon Studio Chorus, and it is very Disney to just hire killer musicians and make such a polished, you know, pro, just shimmeringly shiny sound. The whole band is just recorded so well, and everyone is clearly so proficient. And that's on display. You know, the groove at the beginning in the verses of DuckTales is like just right in there. The bass is right in there. The drums are right in there. Everyone's making it happen. 
The vocals are all so pro. I mean, this is a studio professional singer. He's kind of just got that really silky smooth, like the sound of someone who could just come into the studio and sing backup vocals for you, sing leads for you, really just do anything and do it perfectly. But of course, the thing that everybody gets stuck in their head is the chorus, and that's for a very specific reason. Just listen to the chorus one more time. So part of what makes that so appealing is just the vocal delivery. So again, it's right up there at the top of the male register, right at the break. Um, it's on an E. And he just sings that kind of ducktails. So they pop that out. But then, they, of course, they hop up to falsetto. Woo! But it's actually a little bit more complicated than that because the lead singer actually doesn't go up to the high note. You know, they come in, there's kind of a, a, some backup singers that come in behind him. And the main thing everybody always sings is that woo! But there's also a harmony part. It actually sounds like this. Woo! It's really pleasing harmony. It's just like major thirds, you know, in E major. And I think that people just love to sing that and love the sound of that. Just that little playful jump into falsetto is a big part of what makes this song so appealing. What makes it so catchy, you know, what makes it so it gets stuck in your head. Um, this is something I've talked about on a previous Q&A episode, but really to me, it's just that it's so repetitive. It kind of just repeats that one idea over and over again. By the end of the song, especially if you listen to the full version, you know, more than just the version that plays over the credits, you'll have heard that one idea just over and over and over again and you'll just you get it stuck in your head because that's how earworms work they just repeat over and over again and eventually you're kind of just find yourself humming it because your brain just kind of can't get away from it all the same there are far worse melodies that you could get stuck in your head than mark Mueller's ducktales theme however Mueller also composed my favorite Disney afternoon theme song, and it's one that I kind of, it was a show that I actually didn't really watch that much as a kid, and I knew the theme song because I think every kid just kind of knew these, they were in the air, but um, I hadn't listened to the full recording of it until fairly recently, and it blew my mind the first time I heard it. Just like how good it was, the level of musicianship, the density of the arrangement, the vocal arrangement, the horns, the alto sax solo, there's a whole lot going on. It's really good. What song am I talking about? Some of you may have guessed already, but if you haven't guessed, it's for this show. Rescue Rangers was not a show I watched a ton of, like I said, but oh man, does it have a good theme song. Holy cow, I don't even know where to begin, so we're just going to start at the beginning. Man, it's just, it's this mix of slap bass and a marimba synth that sounds like banana rama. It's such a good groove. Sometimes some crimes go slipping through the cracks, but these two dumb shoes are picking up the slack. What I love about these TV themes is how quickly they get to the point and how much information they pack into these really short segments. So that was the verse right there. We're about to get into the pre-chorus already. It's only been a few seconds, but that verse is really is really cool. It's got a lot of great ideas. It's got a great little melody. It's got a nice chord progression and some nice little variations. So we're in G minor and the melody's just got that nice sometimes some crimes. And it's kind of slinking around to C minor, to D, back to G. But then the second time through, it actually goes to this E flat major 7 and then it goes to C minor and then to F and then to B flat to set up the pre-chorus. It's a really elegant and well put together chord progression. 
I love this chorus too. So the chorus has this thing that uh, it's over a C pedal. So the chorus is actually in C, the verse is in G minor. This song does actually a couple of cool modulations that I didn't realize that it did until I went and learned it on the piano. But um, chorus is in C major while the verse is in G minor. So we start in that kind of minor, darker sound, but then the chorus comes in and it's triumphant because it's time for Chip and Dale and the Rescue Rangers to come rescue us. There's no case to be, no case too small. When you need help, just call. There's so much going on there that I love. First of all, let's just talk about the vocal arrangement, which is super cool. So most theme songs have a single singer. The Rescue Rangers theme, however, has a whole chorus, and it really is the Disney Afternoon Studio Chorus. I'd say this recording kind of embraces that uh, quite a bit, because we start with a male vocalist who sings the verse. And then a female vocalist comes in on the pre-chorus. That shift in singers also kind of indicates a shift to a major key and a more optimistic uh, mindset. And then on the chorus, it actually starts with a choir singing. There's kind of multiple singers. They're all in. And then the male vocalist comes back in higher up in his register to kind of wail through that last part of the chorus. It's such a great dramatic build, the way that it starts with that low kind of, you know, sinister minor key and then it builds up, the female vocalist comes in, we switch into a major key, the choir comes in for that cool chorus and then the male voice comes in on this really dramatic ending. It's good musical storytelling and it works really well. A couple of other things I like on the chorus, it's that C pedal is going, remember we've talked, I think it was on the Elton John episode about a pedal tone, so there's this pedal going in the bass and then the melody is kind of going from a C major uh, chord, like a C major triad, to a B flat major triad, which is a really distinct sound. You've heard it in a lot of songs. It sounds like this. And then when the male vocalist takes over the lead again, they do something cool. They kind of do this walk up from F minor to A flat to a B flat sus to this F and D to get back into G minor. And while they're doing that, there's this really cool little synth line that plays. Um, It's these little three note motifs that sort of change along with the harmony. Listen to the actual recording and keep an ear out for those. So the second verse introduces the echoing backup vocals, which I love. This second chorus is also where I start to really notice the horns, who are doing great work. I mean, this is just a killer studio horn section, uh, one of whose members is going to be featured very prominently in a moment. But the horns are just doing a killer job. It's a cool arrangement. They're kind of following the rules of horn sections that I've laid out. They're fitting into the arrangement really well. And they're doing some nice forte pianos, it's called, which is when you go... Like you hit a note and you sting it and then you get off it and then you crescendo, which good horn sections tend to do that kind of thing. They add a lot of dynamics like that because it just gives a nice sense of motion to what they're playing. (laughs) 
you can't get enough of those forte pianos. You will definitely hear a lot of forte pianos actually in the Strong Songs theme song, because any horn arrangement that I write is going to have a lot of dynamics. So as the second chorus wraps up, it's time to get into the bridge, which is a significant tonal and, uh, and energy shift for the song. The bridge is really cool. It has some very lush harmonies. Check it out. And just another all-class pro vocal performance there. The female vocalist on this, I mean, I'm less familiar with the female voice than the male voice for obvious reasons, but she also is just navigating her break and she jumps into that light mix up there at the top. The way they've arranged the chorus is just, it's beautiful. So that bridge builds through. It kind of goes back and forth between A flat major 9 and E flat, and then it ends on this B flat sus that resolves to E flat. So if you remember, the first chorus was in C major, but this this time after the bridge, uh, they go up to E flat. So the whole thing is actually modulated up a minor third, and it sounds much more exciting. It took a second to get there, so you may not even realize why it sounds more exciting, but it's just all up higher, so everything is happening up higher. So when the male vocal lead comes in, he's noticeably higher up there in his register. You know, he's just a minor third higher, so that's just higher in his register, and that means his voice is going to sound more intense. This is what he sounds like when he's in that first key in C. And here it is up in E flat. So from there they go back to G minor, reprise back to the verse, and it's time for my favorite part of the whole song. Oh yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Honestly, I don't I don't really have that much to add to that. That's a really good sax solo. I love that they got some David Sanborn sounding guy to just come play like this epic pop alto sax solo with like a chorus effect on it, just so fully perfectly of the time period. What a great solo. So you know, like I've said, this is not the thing that played during the show. Kind of wish it had been. I know the TV, no TV show theme song has been long enough to have an alto sax solo that long in it. But man, it would have been so cool. It would have inspired so many young saxophone players back in the late 80s and early 90s if it just had a sax solo like that on the original TV show version of this theme song. Now, between the Simpsons theme and this one, and one that'll come later, you may be wondering if I am like going out of my way to pick animated theme songs that have sax solos. I promise I'm not. I think it's really just that some of the best animated TV show theme songs happen to have really cool sax solos in the middle of them. 
So there's not a whole lot left for the Rescue Rangers theme. It does one more cool thing. So remember this song, this song had modulated for the chorus. It started, it was in C, and then it modulated up to E flat after the bridge to kind of sound more exciting. And then after the sax solos happened, they kind of, they go into the bridge. So the bridge kind of happens again. They go up into that E flat chorus, you know, that modulated up chorus. And then for the outro, they go up another minor third to G flat. And that's where they do their final big hurrah, where the sax is in and he's kind of soloing behind behind the vocalist and everybody's up yet another minor third even higher just really bringing it home here comes that final key change to g flat all right mr sax player So, you know, there's, there's no question that these modern arrangements, um, the modern studio production, they really elevate the songs. Like, these sound killer. They sound better than they do if you go on YouTube and find the original recordings. But the source material is still there, and the source material is really strong. Mark Mueller is a great and really smart songwriter. He's a good melodist. He knows how to write a hook. And there's a reason that these songs get stuck in our heads, you know? When you put on the Chippendales Rescue Rangers or the DuckTales theme at a party full of people of a certain age, you know, who grew up in the 90s, everybody will start singing along. Everybody will remember these songs. And it's because the melodies are so good and because they use smart tricks like repeating the melody over and over again. Um, We just will never forget them. They're sort of ingrained in the subconscious of anyone who grew up with this music. Speaking of being ingrained in the subconscious, this next song gets very ingrained in my subconscious anytime I hear it. It's the theme music from a different kind of animated show, and it recently resurfaced in the culture in a major way. Oh yeah. It's impossible to talk about animated TV theme music without talking about Japanese anime, and it's impossible to talk about anime without talking about Neon Genesis Evangelion. Now, Evangelion originally aired in 1995. It's a Japanese animated show about kids who drive huge robots and fight monsters. There are kind of a lot of shows like that, but Evangelion is special. It's seen as one of the greatest anime of all time. Uh, It's really cool. I haven't watched the whole show. There are like 26 episodes. I've watched a lot of it, though, and I like it. It gets pretty weird like halfway through, but I like the first half. Anyways, this is not an anime podcast. This is a music podcast. And there can be no question that the theme song from Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is called A Cruel Angel's thesis is a very, very strong theme song. It's also a very catchy theme song. This song will get stuck in your head like almost no other. You can almost just say to someone who's seen this show, Evangelion theme song, and they'll immediately get it stuck in their head. The song is kind of a meme at this point. There are a whole lot of versions of it. I think I saw someone sent me a version that was the the song being performed by bike horns. (laughs) 
when it comes down to it, I think that the reason that a Cruel Angels thesis gets stuck in people's head is totally due to repetition. This song has been structured to be earwormy, and it's a cool melody, it's good and catchy, but really, it's just that it repeats itself so many times, it repeats within its melodic ideas, even. So you're always hearing these ideas over and over and over again. Okay, so before we break it down, some vital stats. A Cruel Angels thesis is performed by Yoko Takahashi on vocals. It was composed by Hidetoshi Sato, with lyrics by Niko Oikawa, and an arrangement by Toshiyuki Omori. It's basically in C minor and then also in E flat major for the verses. Those are relatives of one another, if you remember that term from past episodes. Uh, there's a relative minor and a relative major to every scale. E flat major, the relative minor is C minor. If you're in C minor, the relative major is E flat major. So this song goes back and forth between the two. When it comes down to it, a Cruel Angel's thesis really just boils down to that melody that you hear at the very beginning, which is stated once, and then stated again, and then stated many more times throughout the song. Here's what that melody sounds like. So it's a really simple melody. It's just this C minor thing. It moves between you know F and a little bit of E flat, a little bit of B flat, but it's moving through pretty basic chords. And there's just this funny kind of boogaloo groove and this just uh, a really brassiness to the melody. It's really in your face. It's so direct and simple that it's actually kind of charming. And when you hear it for the first time, it just immediately kind of gets in your face. Part of that sort of charming in your faces is the fact that it's just really clearly fake horns. It's keyboard sort of synth horns with this like, they even bend the note, you know, in that very keyboardy way. So if a real horn section were playing it, it would sound one way, but having it played by this kind of cheapo sounding um, synth horns, it adds a sort of level of kitsch to the whole thing that's that's really charming, I think. There's also the repetition factor, and that's already in here. We've only heard this melody one time, but actually, if you go inside of the melody, it repeats itself within itself. So the first phrase sounds like this. And then the second phrase almost mirrors it, it just takes the whole thing up a fifth. So if a melody needs to repeat itself to achieve that kind of mimetic quality that gets it stuck in your head, this melody is smart because it's doing that the first time you hear the entirety of the phrase. The phrase is already repeating that same idea, and then it does it up a fifth, so you've heard it twice just in the first time through the phrase. Is it stuck in your head yet? I bet it is. So uh, another thing that I like is the very intro actually does a slightly different thing harmonically, and it ends on a really neat chord. So this is how this song actually begins. That actually might be my favorite part of the song. It's really cool. So it's in C minor still, and it begins and kind of plays the melody the same way. So it starts out about the same as it does once the groove comes in, but then it goes from C minor to A flat to B flat, and it ends on this A flat 9. And that's a really beautiful sound that sounds like this. Mm, Love it. Listen to how it sounds in the actual recording when she comes out of that first phrase. That suspended ninth, you know, it just gives you goosebumps. I love that sound. I think that's a really beautiful sounding introduction. So we get a bodacious drum fill. (laughs) 
and then the groove comes in and they play through the melody instrumentally and then the uh, the verse happens So again, we got a pretty standard chord progression there. This is really just a pop song, uh, but it's a nice chord progression, actually. You know, it's in E-flat now, so we've gone to E-flat major, and it kind of just moves through the usual, you know, to the 5, to the 4, up to the 6. Um, and then at the very end, it does a cool thing where it goes to a D half-diminished chord um, to a G sus, G7 thing. That, you know, half-diminished doesn't turn up that often, and this is sort of what makes it sound a little bit different than, uh, you know, a pop song you might hear on a different show. Um, it has a little bit more lushness and a little bit more jazz going on, which actually makes sense given that there's there's some other jazz tunes that play a part in Evangelion at other points in the show. Now there's another cool thing going on in this verse and that's to do with the groove. This is a really groovy song. It's hard to hear um, a Cruel Angel's thesis and not want to kind of just get up and dance. I feel like a lot of people probably dance during this part when uh, a new episode comes on and the theme music plays and a lot of that is due to the groove. The drums are really going for it and it has this kind of over-the-top uh, vibe but something cool is happening on the verse. Listen really quick just to what's happening in the drums. Oh, yeah. So you can probably hear the kick drum is going, it's four on the floor, which is just quarter notes, boom, 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 kind of like a disco beat. So that's got that thump, right? Where if you think about the thump, pop, sizzle, strong songs, groove breakdown, the thump is really present. It's that four on the floor, thump, thump, thump. The sizzle is happening over in the right channel, there's kind of a shaker, and I want you to listen again to that much and see if you can hear the pop which would normally be the snare drum. See if you can hear what's providing the pop. Okay, that was a trick question, actually. There isn't a pop happening during this verse. There are some, uh, what sounds like bongo drums over in the left channel, but those are not really that poppy. They sound a little more sizzly. So there's kind of just a lot of high frequency stuff happening and there's that boom 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 down on the thump but there's no pop the pop doesn't happen until the pre-chorus so the snare is just out this is kind of a really good example of removing one of the thump pop or sizzle elements to create a groove that you know creates a new identity for the section that it's underlying in this case by removing the pop they've made the verse sound very different from the rest of the song Love those backup vocals that come in there in the left channel. Um, so now that the pop has been removed, it's time to bring it back in, and they do that during the pre-chorus, which actually has a really cool chord progression too, another kind of jazz-influenced chord progression that does a couple of neat things. And also that snare drum comes back in full force. You hear the snare? It's like pop, pop. So there's some very cool synth stuff going on there. But also I just like the chord progression of this uh, pre-chorus. It's really neat. Um, it's, you know, it's it goes to the four, so we were in E flat major and it goes to A flat. And then it just moves through this kind of two, five, one-y chord progression that does some really cool stuff. There's a turnaround where it goes to B flat and then it goes to B flat minor to E flat to get back to A flat. It does some stuff that you see a little bit more in like jazz standards or just in old American songbook standards uh, than you would see in a, you know, in a typical pop song. So it adds more 
more drama and kind of more richness to the proceedings than you would get typically. And that's good because it's building to a very dramatic place. This pre-chorus is building, of course, to the chorus. And that's where Yoko Takahashi really just takes it all out and sings that melody that we've already heard, you know, a couple of different ways, but we haven't quite heard it sung like this. Just when you think they're wrapping up, they're not wrapping up. Yes, so the chorus of this song actually repeats that phrase three times. Usually a chorus repeats things twos, things are kind of divided up into even numbers, but the chorus of A Cruel Angel's Thesis actually goes three times. So as if you haven't gotten enough repeating of that mimetic melody, you get it again, and then you get it yet again, so it goes so many times through. Um, After this guitar solo, you know, they go through the verse again, and they do the chorus again, and when they do the chorus, they sing it three times through the phrase, which is just even more repetition. So by the time your brain is done processing this, you just can't help but have that melody in your head. We're not done with you yet. One more time. Now, good luck getting that song out of your head for the first, like, five or six minutes of the episode that you're watching. Fortunately, it's a really rocking song. I mean, it's kind of a joy to have this song stuck in your head. I've spent many days since I've been sort of re-watching the show, since it came out on Netflix, just sort of laughingly whistling it or singing it or finding myself kind of doing a cha-cha to it as I walk through the kitchen. And it's, it's a really just bold song. And I think the boldness of it more than anything else is what causes it to have such an appeal. I mean, it just, it is not messing around. That melody is so almost it's kind of inelegant you know there's some elegance to the chords which is cool and kind of a nice contrast but the melody itself is so direct and in your face that it's kind of winning in that way that a very direct person can be okay so i could talk about the evangelion theme for quite a bit longer but i really want to get to the last song that we're going to get to which is actually another japanese show another anime show that has a really good theme song that i think a lot of you probably know and most of you probably like it's a song that pretty much doesn't have lyrics, though there are some words that happen at the very beginning, and the whole thing centers around a couple of killer riffs. Well, that's riff number one, isn't it? Come on, you didn't think that I could do animated TV themes without talking about Cowboy Bebop. Alright, man, get us ready for riff number two. I think it's time to blow this scene, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. And tank. 
is the name of the big band jazz tune that opens the 1998 anime Cowboy Bebop, widely beloved by fans both for its music and its cool characters, cool action sequences, and just for being a pretty good show. The opening tune is called Tank, with an exclamation point. It was written by Yoko Kano, who is a keyboardist and the musical director for the show. She also leads a band called Seatbelts, and they are a jazz big band that perform uh, Tank and the rest of the Cowboy Bebop soundtrack, all of which is really cool stuff. She's an amazing musician, writes all kinds of really fascinating music, uses a lot of really cool stuff. Um, I could talk about her a lot. We're just going to focus on Tank for now because that's a cool tune on its own, partly because it it underlies this iconic opening sequence uh, for Cowboy Bebop that even if you haven't seen it, you've probably seen its echoes in other shows. I think that Cowboy Bebop is streaming on Hulu right now. Who knows, though, if you're listening to this in the future. Maybe it isn't. Uh, it's a very fun show, though. I will also link to that opening sequence on YouTube in the show notes so you can at least go and watch that. So, funny story, I used to direct a jazz big band at a high school in San Francisco in the early 2000s. We were the younger band, so I didn't always have as many students as the, you know, the big band, the uh, advanced band. So I was always kind of working with an interesting instrumentation, and as a result, I would write a lot of my own charts. And I did a chart of Tank from Cowboy Bebop for my band. It was maybe our best performance. It was a really great class that year. I had a couple of really good alto saxophone soloists. There's a killer alto sax solo later in this tune. And it was a super fun chart, so as a result, I learned this tune very well. Well, it's a really good one for a high school band because it's a simple and straightforward blues, but it's also really cool and just really fun to play. So there are a couple of terms that I think tank is useful and kind of instructive to demonstrate how they work. Those two things are a big band and the blues. So you've probably heard both of those. Maybe some of you know what they are. Some of you hear about big band music and you think, does that just mean the band is large? Or is it, you know, does that mean something more specific? Yes, it means something more specific. And also the blues, you know, oh yeah, that guy plays blues. That was bluesy. But what does that exactly? mean. Okay, so Tank is a blues tune, and it's written for a big band, and those are both in the most technical terms. Seatbelts is a big band. I'm not sure the exact uh, instrumentation, but it's pretty much a big band. So what does that mean? All right, just really quickly, a big band is when you see a large, you know, horn ensemble with a rhythm section up on stage playing, you know, Count Basie music or Duke Ellington music, that's a big band. Those two uh, guys were from the, you know, 1930s, 1940s and onward, led to the most famous big bands. A big band is saxophones, trombones, and trumpets in the horns, and then a rhythm section. The rhythm section is guitar, bass, drums, and piano. That's a basic, like, standard big band. There are big bands with flute players, there are big bands with violin players, there are all kinds of big bands that add interesting other instruments, but in general, saxophones, trombones, trumpets, and then a rhythm section. There are generally around 20 people in a standard jazz big band. There are five saxophones, two altos, two tenors, and a berry. There are four trombones, three regular trombones, and a bass trombone. And there are typically five trumpets. Some big bands have six trumpets. One trumpet player plays lead. Usually the second trumpet player is kind of a soloist, or the third is a soloist, and they do a split lead. There's kind of some more technical stuff in there, but that's pretty much it. That's Count Basie's big band you're hearing in the background there, playing a killer tune called Front Burner. So that's a big band. 
If you look at it from the top with the horns, it just goes five, four, five on the bottom with the saxophones, and then four in the rhythm section, maybe another extra rhythm section player, maybe another extra person here or there, but that's pretty much what a big band is. So this is a big band chart, seatbelts are a big band, Yoko Kano leads a big band, and this is big band music. Okay, so now a blues. What is a blues? The blues can mean a lot of different things. Blues, you can be a blues musician and it just kind of means that you, you know, you play music that's typically, you know, in the blues genre. It's kind of a genre of music and it's a little looser there, like all genres. There was one of the reasons that I think that arguments about genres are always kind of, uh, if not pointless, at least kind of not the best way to spend your time is because genre is so vague and, you know, ever changing. But blues is also a technical musical term that's much more concrete. The most simple way to break it down is to say that a blues refers to a type of song form that's typically used in jazz and of course blues music. It means a 12 bar song that follows a generally like, you know, agreed upon framework of chords and at its most basic version, which is all I'm going to break down for you here only has three chords. So 12 bars long, it has three chords in it and it follows that form and that's called blues song form. So a musician might say to another musician, hey we're playing this tune, uh, it's just a 12 bar blues in C and everybody knows what that means because it means you can play 12 bars, you can play in C and you pretty much know which chords are going to go where. So a 12-bar blues is best thought of as three groupings of four bars. When I say a bar, that's a measure, four beats. So it's three groupings of one, two, three, four. You know, that's one measure. So three groupings of four measures. Uh, there are three chords in the blues that are the most important ones to know. And those chords, this is separate from the measure counting, are the one chord, the four chord, and the five chord. Okay, so if you're doing a blues, you're going to kind of start and you're going to do four measures of just the one chord. And I'm kind of playing a blues behind myself right now. So this is just four measures of the one chord. Then the next group of four, you're going to go up to the four chord for two bars, and then you're going to go back to the one chord. And then for the last group of four, you're going to go over to the five, and then you're going to go to the four, and then you're going to go to the one. And that's a 12-bar blues. We will almost certainly get more into the blues and blues song form and jazz song form and all of this stuff on another jazz-focused episode. For now, that's a good introduction. That's all you really need to know to understand Tank. And the important thing to know is that it's basically a 12-bar song form that repeats over and over and over again, and that that 12-bar song form focuses on the one chord, the four chord, and the five chord. All right, so let's get back to Tank. Remember, this is a big band tune, and this thing starts with just the rhythm section, and it's really focused on the bass and on the guitar. Acoustic guitar actually which is kind of unusual for um for a big band usually there's an electric guitar in there so those are the two things that really drive this first riff So just right off the top, this is such a killer groove, and it's just driven by that bass and that just trashy, like, grindy acoustic guitar that's going in the right channel. So Tank is in C, this is a C minor blues, and that riff is in C. It's really simple, but the way that they play it is such a key part of what makes it groove. The guitar sounds like it's kind of sliding down the neck, it's like really kind of just, like, gross, you can really hear the attack, and the bass is hitting really hard, so you can really hear the attack well-defined, like, as the fingers, the bass player's fingers are hitting that upright bass. So between the two of them, they get this really strong percussive element to their playing. Enter the bongos. Get some shaker in there too. Always got to have some shaker. Nothing. 
So by the time that voice comes in, that male voice that kind of narrates this little introduction, I think it's time we blow this thing. Um, the groove is just so strong in this, and the the horns haven't even come in yet. It's just actually the drum set is barely in. It's really just guitar, bass, bongos, and a little bit of kick drum, and they're it's just killing the groove already. So by the time the horns come in, things are really really just ready to explode. Three, two, one, it's jam. So let's just talk about that. That's the main melody of Tank, and that's a really easy motif to follow, right? I mean, it's super clear when they play it, and then it's super clear when they play it in a slightly different key. And that's the blues. That's They're playing over that blues form, and that's what makes it sound that certain way. So the main motif of this melody is this. So the whole horn section is playing in unison here. This is just everybody is playing the same notes. There's no harmonizing going on. They're just playing that riff. So they do that two times. This is on the one. Remember, this is the first four bars of the blues. And then they go up to the four chord and they play the same thing just up on F, up on the four chord. And then they go back down to the one and they restate the motif in C. You just, you couldn't get a clearer illustration of the first eight bars of a 12-bar blues than Tank. It's one of the reasons it's like a great song to teach uh, students, uh, for student bands to play, because it's just very clear. Every single horn is playing the same note. They're all in unison, and they just outline, you know, the riff even starts on C. So it goes from C, then up to F, the four, and then back to C. So the last chord in the blues is the five chord. The five chord is often where blueses will do something maybe a little bit creative or a little bit off kilter, and that's definitely what Tank does. The five chord still happens. They just do something kind of interesting. It's like they play a G chord, it's a type of G dominant, and then they kind of go up a step and they do something over A, which is just a little bit unusual, but um, it gives it that kind of jumpy sound that the five section has that those last four bars have. Man, I love that turnaround. That is on the five chord, and that's setting up the the next time through the chorus. Um, Also, just side note, I love how they've recorded this. They're using a lot of room mics, and it's a very roomy sound, which means the band just sounds big and echoey. It sounds like they're playing in this big hall, and it just gives things a different sound than some big band recordings, which are much closer. They mic each individual instrument, and you can kind of hear like a much tighter sound. This is just big and loose and roomy and kind of dirty, and it adds to to the recording's vibe, which matches with with the vibe of the show really beautifully. So the second time through, they, uh, the trumpets go up the octave. Everyone is still in unison, but the trumpets just are up the octave, so it's just a little bit more exciting sounding. Um, but they pretty much just reprise the melody the same way that they did before. However, after that comes something a little unusual for a 12-bar blues. Uh, they go to the bridge. So Tank may be a 12-bar blues and a really kind of definitive 12-bar blues, but it also has a bridge, which a blues does not have a bridge. A blues usually just repeats 12 bars over and over again. So Tank is both a 12-bar blues and what's called an AABA song, which is A section, then another A section that's identical, and then a B, a bridge, and then a final A section. It's just that the A's are 12-bar blueses. So it's like a really big 12-bar blues. It's kind of one kind of form sandwiched inside of another kind of form, a sandwich inside of a sandwich, which would be a big sandwich, right? Um, I'm not going to do a big harmonic analysis 
struggles with the bridge, though I do think it's really cool. And a thing that I love is that the Barry sax hits that low C, which on Barry sax is a low A because that instrument transposes. Don't have to get into it, but it's the lowest note on a Barry sax. Some berries don't even have a low A key. And it's the lowest note, and it just gets this like really low sound that you hear at the very beginning of the bridge. <laughs> it's so good. Oh man, there's nothing better than the lowest note on a berry. Just the whole horn is resonating like it just sounds monstrous and great. So coming out of that bridge, it's time to do that 12-bar blues one more time, only this time they do change it up. The saxophones and the trombones keep playing that main motif, but the trumpets, actually aided by the berry sax, play these really cool counter melodies that happen in between the riff. The first one sounds like this. And the second one is this killer ascending thing that the, the drummer gets in on with the snare drum that just kills. And then when they go up to the four chord, the trumpets go even higher and they do this like really ridiculously screaming line. I'm actually just going to kind of paraphrase it here on piano. <laughs> sure, close enough. Um, and the last one is this short little send-off riff that goes into the five chord. So listen back to that last time through the 12-bar blues, listening for really all of that. Listen for the way they move through the blues form, the different, you know, three sets of four measures, the way it goes from the one to the four, then to the five, the melody itself, and then those really cool trumpet counter melodies that are also in that last time. And that's the whole song form done, so it's time to set up the solo break. That's what this next thing is called, a break, when the whole band stops and one soloist just takes the reins for two bars and goes nuts, and then the whole band comes back in. That soloist, in this case, is Masato Honda, an alto saxophone soloist who just totally kills it on this tune, um, and has he just plays a great solo break and really sets the whole thing up well. Here we go. Okay, this solo totally owns. I could play the whole thing for this. Um, I, I don't even, I mean, I would love to do that, but we would just be sitting here listening to a really good alto sax solo. I do encourage you to go find the full recording of this and listen to that because um, his solo is just super good. And he does something very cool at the end that I will highlight. But generally, it's just he goes through the whole form and shreds the entire time and sounds great. There is no question that dude can play. There's actually something cool going on right there, too, in the background. There's this kind of interplay between the berry sax and the trumpets, where the berry sax plays that low C again, which, remember, is a low A, the lowest note for the berry sax. And then the trumpets are like, and they kind of bounce off of one another while Honda is soloing in the middle. 
Yoko Kano is definitely fond of her low A's on that baritone sax, and I get why. It's such a cool sound. Now, I should note that this is from the soundtrack version of Tank. The version that plays under the credit sequence doesn't include the alto saxophone solo. So there's a thing that happens at the end that I'll get to that a lot of people I actually bet maybe have heard it and aren't sure what instrument it is because they weren't set up by there being this whole long alto saxophone solo in the middle of the tune like there is in this full version. So let's get to that thing at the ending because I think that Tank has one of the most awesome big band endings of any song I can think of. I really rank it up there that high. I think this is an amazing ending. So let's get into it. Um, Honda has been soloing for quite a while, and then finally it's time for the melody to come back in. They actually just do a quick reprise of the melody, one time through the 12-bar form, and then it's time for the outro. Then it's time for the weird chord. Yeah, so that chord right before the ending is this super weird, like, cluster chord. I'm not totally sure what it is. It's kind of hard to hear the individual voices, probably because they've recorded with that really roomy sound. It's something like there's a G going on, but there's an F sharp up on the top, which is the major seventh, and there's, like, a tritone in there, and maybe a flat nine. It's kind of some kind of, like, flat nine sharp four major seventh. It might just be, like, a chord over another chord. Not totally sure what it is. It's pretty bodacious sounding, though, and very tense, and it's, like, this big, just clustered mess right before they go into the outro and set up Honda to do his thing. Nelly. So what Honda's doing there is the, the what's called the altissimo register of the saxophone. He's up on a high C and then he kind of like hits that high C super hard. Bop, 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 and then he like jumps up to the E flat or, you know, on the alto sax, a C goes up to the minor third a bunch of times and then just like rips it down. The drummer like does that snare hit to kind of set in the band and then everybody comes in just on this monster C chord. I got nothing. I mean, I really think that's just one of the best endings for a big band tune, or really just one of the best endings I can think of. I love it, and it's a perfect way to set up what is a very, very cool TV show. And that'll do it for Strong TV Songs Animated Edition. Like I said, this was a bit of an experiment. I definitely had fun making it, so I hope that you had fun listening to it and got something out of it. As I said, there are so many more animated songs I could have talked about. I mean, I even had songs planned for this episode that I had to cut to keep it from being even longer than it already was. This will almost certainly not be the last time that I do this. I could focus on all kinds of other songs for themed episodes like this. If you have thoughts or feedback on this episode or anything else, feel free to reach me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. If you like this episode or if you like the show, please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. That really helps me. A lot of people have been coming through and leaving them, which is great and I think makes the show more visible, so I really appreciate it. 
The other way that you can support the show, of course, is to become a patron on Patreon. This is a totally listener-supported show, and I really appreciate everyone who's signed up to help support the show and help me put as much time into this show as I really want to. So you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash strong songs, and you can find the names of my wonderful whole and half-note backers in the show notes. This episode's outro soloist is the fantastic Bay Area accordionist Rob Reich, who you should really catch live if you get a chance. Stick around for Rob, and I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Strong Songs. Thank <laughs> you.